The difference between the stock market and the bond market is that the stock market is overvalued, but oversold. The bond market is grossly oversold and deeply undervalued. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back at the end of the week for another weekly market recap with my indomitable friend, portfolio <laughs> manager, Lance Roberts. And Lance, what a week it has been. Pretty decent down week in the market so far. Uh, big news, well, not big news, but disappointing news from the Federal Reserve. All of a sudden, investors have got the jitters. Uh, a lot going on here, but let's start with the action. So down week. Yeah, it was. And again, this is uh, pretty much, you know, again, you know, lots of headlines like, oh my gosh, oh, markets are down. And, you know, look, it's it's kind of playing along, right, with seasonal trends. And if we kind of go back and look at, at, at years of the market, whether it's pre-election years as we're in now, or in just a normal kind of seasonal weakness, the markets are kind of doing exactly what you would expect. Lots of sloppy, you know, trading, particularly in the last couple of weeks of September. Um, you know, but so again, it, it's nothing really, you know, shocking or surprising. You know, there's not been a big surge in volume. There hasn't been any real signs of panic or capitulation on any front. So again, it's nothing to really get, you know, overly concerned about. It's just kind of really that correctional process that we talked about uh, in June and July. Uh, we talked about we'd have a 5% correction from the peak. We're sitting right on that. We had that correction back in August, and we touched yesterday that bottom uh, from August. So we had a nice little bounce that last you know couple of weeks of August, first week of September. Uh, everybody got all bullish again, and now we just kind of retested that bottom. So you know, if the market holds here, it's actually a nice little good double bottom that we're putting in. Markets are up a little bit on Friday. We'll see if they can hold on to it. But I really wouldn't worry too much about what's going on. Markets are oversold on both uh, our MACD sell signal is oversold. Uh, relative strength index is oversold. Williams percent R is oversold. Money flows are oversold. So again, just, you know, we did a lot of kind of ringing out of the market over the last couple of days. So, you know, again, probably a, a decent little entry point. All right. Um, and I want to talk about the oversold nature of stocks, as you think. I, you also think bonds are oversold at this point? Oh, yeah. Bonds are drastically oversold. Bonds. The difference between the stock market and the bond market is that the stock market is overvalued, but oversold. The bond market is grossly oversold and deeply undervalued. So, you know, from a from a betting perspective, I'd be buying bonds, and which is why I added another 30 percent to my bond portfolio yesterday. Um, yeah. Ah. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm not going to let you slide that one by us. We're going to talk about that in depth. Oh, no, okay. Uh, now, wait a minute. That's my, pers that's my personal account, not my client accounts. So, uh, yep. We're still going to talk about it, though. Don't worry. Um, but before we get there, um, uh, okay. So, uh, right now, it's been interesting. Um, you know, there's a fair amount of hand wringing going on right now where, where bears are coming out and saying, uh, all right, you know, we're, 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 we're seeing the market struggle here. Uh, we just heard Powell uh, come out, and we're going to talk about that literally in just a second. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that there's, um, amongst a certain crowd at least, maybe a growing sense of, okay, yeah, this is it. The rally of 2023 is over. Things are beginning to roll roll over here. Lag effects, recession coming, et cetera. Um, but I want to I want to contrast that with your comments about things being oversold. And even though the stock market, as you said, is overvalued, in the short term, it may be oversold and it could still power higher going into the end of the year. You actually have a piece about that I want to ask you about in just a second. But real quick, don't think we should go any further without talking about the Fed presser this week, 
what Powell said, what your interpretations of that are, how the market is currently interpreting it, and then we'll go into those other topics. Sure. Um, so Powell came out um, for anyone that was sleeping under a rock uh, since Wednesday. Uh, he basically, you know, he, he, he didn't uh, he didn't surprise anybody in the sense that he said, all right, no, we're keeping rates where they are. Um, but he did reveal that um, the the Fed dot plot so far still anticipates another rate hike at some point in 2023. Uh, it's going to have to happen relatively soon just because we're, we're running out of the year here. Um, he also was directly asked. Um, so your base case, you said your base case was a soft landing, you know, earlier uh, in a previous press conference. Is that still your default assumption? And Powell went, oh, uh, no, no, it's not. And, you know, he's never going to say, I expect a hard landing recession. But in sort of all the Fed speak that followed when he sort of, you know, was maneuvering around that question, it was very much Fed speak saying you should prepare for something a lot harder than a soft landing. Um, there's some other things to react to from there, but but quickly, I want to start with this. What, what, what struck you the most from that conversation? Actually, nothing. Um, and the market's reaction is really kind of stupid if you think about it, because um, the Fed, if you actually read the statement, so every meeting when the Federal Reserve has their FOMC minutes, uh, or meeting, sorry, they publish their actual statement. And then what we what everybody does is they take it and then they redline out what changed in the statement from the last meeting. And so every meeting, it's just the same statement that they put out every single meeting and then they change a word. They're like, for instance, they change modest job growth to solid job growth. There were very few revisions in the statement. I think there were three in total of, of just minor word changes. They didn't even erase whole sentences this time. It was just a minor word change of just kind of upgrading the economic outlook. And that should be expected based on the recent economic data, which has been a lot stronger than expected. Again, the Fed's operating on lagging data. Lagging data has been strong, so they changed their wording a little bit. And so, you know, that that shouldn't surprise you at all. Um, and, and the fact that, and, and again, if you actually think for a moment the Fed is sitting around going, okay, everybody give me your honest assessment. So they have 19 members that vote. And so all 19 members come out and they say, oh, I think we should raise rates five more times or whatever the number is. Um, if you think that's what's really going on, you've got to be fooling yourself because they're all on the same page. And this is why whenever they go out and speak in public, they all say the same thing. And when you review the, the minutes meetings, Whatever the, the change is, they almost vote unanimously for right. that. Um, even though five of them had dissented previously and said, oh, we should hike rates you know, five more times. The reason that they do that, and if you think about this for a moment, let's rewind the tape to, to, to Wednesday for a moment. Market sitting here, wringing our hands over, oh my gosh, what's the Fed going to say? And the Fed comes out on Thursday and says, yeah, we're done hiking rates. Um, you know, it's, it's all good. We achieved our, our, our position, and so we're done hiking rates. The market would be up 5% that day, which is exactly not what the Fed wants because stronger asset growth leads to increased consumer confidence, which leads to more spending, which creates inflation. And that's exactly what they're trying to curtail that happening. So leaving the rate hike out there saying, oh, yeah, we might hike rates one more time. Let me tell you right now, the Fed's done. They're not going to hike rates anymore. They left that rate hike out there because, A, it gives them an option, but more importantly, it takes, it keeps the markets from overreacting and running asset prices up through the roof. And so this is, you know, you should have expected them to leave. And in fact, we even said this earlier this week, don't expect any changes, expect one rate hike to be hanging out there. You know, that's that's where we're going to wind up. And it's exactly what kind of came across 
the market reaction was was more of a not a sentiment change, but that we had a whole big stack of options in the market. And if you look at where the selling was, it was all in tech stocks. We have a tremendous amount of, of put options out on all different kind of call options and put options out on all different types of stocks, primarily in the tech sector. And so they had to unwind all those positions very quickly, which is why you had the big sell-off yesterday. Um, and it was only one and a half percent. It wasn't like we had a three percent sell-off. We right. haven't had a one and a half percent sell-off in over a hundred days in the market. That's extremely long time to have such low volatility in the market. So again, the reaction, no big deal. Uh, the the statement is exactly as, as as you should expect. And outside of that, and we'll talk about Fed projections in a moment. The last thing you should ever rely on is anything the Fed says about where economic growth is going to be. They upgraded their economic forecast. He may have danced around the little segment of of you know saying, well, don't you know we're not you know our base case isn't really a soft landing. But he didn't make any assessment about a recession or a deep recession. They're actually upgrading their economic forecast. Even Janet Yellen has come out and said, oh, we're not going to have a recession. So never believe anything she says. But, <laughs> but she's always wrong. But the Fed is never right about their economic forecast. And basing any of your actions on what the Fed says or projects out again they're trying to manipulate the markets. They're trying to manipulate market participants. What they really think and what they produce as a statement are two entirely different things. I totally agree. And I'm going to put up some Fed projections in a minute just so we can kind of, you know, tear into them. Um, but I, I, I just want to, you made a real declarative statement. I just want to put it out there on the record if indeed you're, you're I heard you right. Um, and of course, this is just an opinion. Obviously, you're a very data-driven guy. You'll go where the data goes. But you, okay. you, your your assessment of the probabilities is that the Fed is done hiking rates. They're done hiking rates. They're not going to hike rates anymore. Okay, great. Because, again, well, it, because let, let's just let's just assume it this way. Let, let, so forget forget that statement for a second. Let's just back it up. They've left room out there for one more rate hike, right? Yep. Next meeting, they hike rates. What's the first thing the market's going to do as soon as they hike rates? I don't know, puke. No, they're gonna they're gonna go rally off to the moon because now oh, they're because it's done. They're, Sorry, you're right. Yeah, you're right. It's the, done. The, Fed, yeah. the Fed's done hiking rates. So this is why. So the Fed is going to leave that one rate hike hanging out there, and they're not going to hike rates anymore because they need that threat of a rate hike to keep markets huh. under control. So it's it's a Jedi mind trick, is what you're saying? Correct. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's not the rate hike you're looking for. It's still coming. Uh, and they're always <laughs> exactly. going to keep the market guessing. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Well, to, to, to the Fed's projections and to where rates should be, um, Powell did share this dot plot, right? Which, which shows here in 2023, they think there's likely, they estimate there's likely one more hike to be made. You're betting it's not going to happen. This is the Jedi mind trick, right? Right. Now, Powell is saying, and then, you know, we think that we're going to start slowly bringing rates down in 2024. They'll still be around 5% Fed funds rate. And that'll gently glide over the next several years down to 2.5%. Um, as you said, the Fed is never right. Um, so you shouldn't bet much at all, if anything, on what the Fed is is telling you to project because they've got really one of the worst track records in history of projecting. A flip coin would literally be right a lot more often than they are. Um, yeah, and I can, I can actually prove that point if you want to see a chart real quick. Yeah, real quick. Right before we get to that, though, I, I just want to underscore, you know, what, what Powell is guiding us to versus 
what I think you and I and many other folks on this uh, interview on this channel think, which is, I don't think many of us have a doubt that the Fed's going to bring the Fed funds rate down to two and a half percent. We are just much more confident on the under of that bet. It's not going to be by 2026 or beyond. It's probably going to be at some point next year as, quote unquote, something breaks and the Fed has to scramble in rescue mode, right? So this sense of like, oh, we're going to bring this down over the next three to four years ever so gently is probably one of the least likely outcomes going forward. Want to get your reaction to that? No, is that it's it's absolutely right. You know, look and and you know, as I was saying, you know, right now the market's doing exactly what you think they would do. I would expect probably a potential rally in the year end. The economic data is probably going to still be fairly sustainable at this point. We're about to hit earnings season. You got stock buybacks opening back up. Once you get into twenty twenty four, though, all bets are off. And and again, I think that lag effect is going to catch up starting probably second quarter, third quarter. Um, where the economy really starts hitting the brakes. And more importantly, as we talked about previously, that spread between GDP and GDI. Um, I think the, the, the Fed may be well surprised here. And, and again, you know, the end of the year rally is, is you know, I give it 60% chance, right? So, I mean, it's not 100%. Because I think any, any moment now, we're going to get revision to economic data, which is going to be pretty negative. And mm. it's hard to see some of that, that, GDI will never catch up to GDP. GDP always catches down to GDI. So that simple math, math of when that occurs is the question. Is it next month, a month after? Is it first quarter of next year? But whenever the, 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 the economic revisions occur, it'll be a pretty, it'll start to show there's a pretty sharp slowdown occurring in the economy. Okay. Um, I just recorded an interview this week with Darius Dale. Part one aired before this video. Part two is going to air early next week. I'm probably going to reference this several times in this conversation, Lance. So just a heads up. Um, but I think Darius, who uh, I'm, I'm going to, you're a very data-driven guy. I, I'm going to say I think Darius lives in a sea of even more data than you. It's ridiculous uh, how much data that guy goes through in a conversation. Um, but he he sees sort of the landscape very similarly to you. Um, so he does think that there's a preponderance of uh, preponderance, the the, the 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 greater probability of stocks running from here, running higher still. Um, uh, we'll get more into that in just a moment. Um, but uh, uh, he also thinks that um, all his recession indicators uh, suggest that we are still going to have a recession, right? It hasn't been avoided. Uh, maybe it was pushed back a little bit, um, but he's got high confidence in his models that a recession could arrive at some point between basically start of November uh, or on the long end, April of next year. And looking at the current data, he is pushing it out to the further end of that curve and saying, yeah, I think it's probably going to be closer to April. Right. But so anyways, I just want to say he, he's using a lot of data to see a very similar landscape as you. I, I see the same. Look, I have the same, you know, the, you know, all of the economic composites and everything else that we run suggests the same thing. I'm I'm pushing it out a little bit further. I think it's second quarter, maybe third quarter. And the only reason is, is because when you start getting into recession, um, as that starts to show up, you're going to start getting, you know, things will start to crack, right? And the Fed's going to come in and try to bail something out like a regional, like they did with regional banks. And it may just kind of drag that out a little bit further. Um, so, you know, I always try to give a little bit of buffer. Yeah, I could absolutely, you know, a recession could actually, uh, you know, show up you know, much sooner than expected, but I always try to give a little bit of buffer on time. 
Right. And, and you know, Darius would say the same thing. He's like, look, it, it could happen in November. I mean, it, it, it could happen in a week. I mean, there's a lot of, lot of reasons we could come up with, but the preponderance of the data he's suggesting or seeing suggests it's probably on the further end of that curve. But again, in his mind, by Q2 of next year, sounds like you're somewhat similar. Um, all right. So um, one other thing that the Fed uh, mentioned, and by the way, you you had mentioned a chart that you wanted to bring up earlier. So I don't want to I don't want to skip over that if you wanted to show that chart. Yeah, yeah, no, it's just it's just you know, you're talking about Fed projections. And I'm actually this weekend's newsletter on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, um, is actually talking about Fed projections are useless. And the reason is, is that again, these are more marketing things than anything else, but there's only one group that's probably worse at making forecasts than the Federal Reserve, and that's Wall Street analysts. Um, but <laughs> but so back in 2007, uh, the Federal Reserve started talking about their economic forecast, and you can go back to their old meetings, and you can see in their notes where they had their their forecast for GDP, inflation, economic, uh, and employment. And starting in 2011 under Bernanke, they started publishing that table that you see where it gives you the range of estimates for, you know, this year and next year and the year after in the long run. Um, and, and so what I started doing is I started tracking that going back to June, January of 2011. And I've been tracking every one of those ever since. And what you find out is, is that they're always high at the start and they decline. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and as you get closer to the end of the, of the cycle, you know, you get closer to where economic growth is going to actually be. So just an example, um, in, in last year, they were predicting 2023 economic growth to be 3%. Now we're down to 2%. And we're likely going to be lower than that by the time we actually, you know, wind up this year. But again, you know, this is this is the problem with all of these forecasts and, and is that they're all very just kind of statement. And, and this, I, I took it, I just kind of graphed their projections of economic growth versus what actually happened. And it's just, they're, they're off all the time and, and they're never accurate. So again, it's just, I think you have to take all, anything the Fed says, you take with a grain of salt because of two things. One, they're messaging. They're messaging the markets. They're messaging the financial system to keep things kind of under control. They want to keep the markets from doing crazy stuff at the wrong time. And the other is, is that they're just, they're looking at a lot of economic lagging data and they're making all their policy decisions on data that is going to be revised it's going to be changed. It's not going to be what they think it is. And these projections, again, we've talked about the uselessness of projections anyway. But when you start trying to project something one year, two years, three years in advance, you, there is no way that you're going to be able to factor in all the possible evolutions of, of impacts that are going to occur from economics and politics to financial markets and everything else. Okay. Um, uh, and we've had that discussion on this channel a lot before about... Um, you know, the shorter your the shorter your horizon, the more confidence you have in in the projections. But once you get out, even in your you know, you've said that a couple of days or weeks that generally almost become useless. And of course, yeah. then when you have a source that is error prone, uh, <laughs> as Wall Street analyst or worse, the Fed, um, then you can throw it all all out the window. Uh, by the way, Darius did also show um, some data as well, showing that uh, from his perspective. Going forward, estimates from Wall Street analysts are, are dangerously optimistic at this point in time and almost certainly going to have to be brought down um, as we get closer to to getting into 2024. You're nodding as I'm saying this. Yeah. Um, so so one other just to just to put up one other Fed projection that we can perhaps tear to shreds briefly, um, if for no other reason than just for our own schadenfreude, um, was their uh, their uh, projections for the unemployment rate. Um, 
So basically, they're projecting that the unemployment rate will rise, right? Um, and interestingly, you know, Powell has been trying to a certain extent to get it to rise since mid-2022, uh, right? I mean, as he's begun this, this whole hiking and tightening campaign, he's talked a lot about trying to cool off the jobs market and the huge gap between openings and applicants and all that stuff. So he's literally been trying to cool the jobs market now for the better part of a year and a half with, with not a lot of success, uh, at least as measured by the official numbers, until quite recently. I mean, unemployment now has risen to 3.8, right? He says it's it's going to get up to about 4.1. It's going to really hang out there maybe for about a year, and then it's going to slowly start coming down. And um, I, I don't know about you, Lance, but um, you know, if we have the type of landing that I think uh, is is more likely than not uh, next year, uh, if we're able to contain unemployment at just you know 0.3 percent higher than where we are right now, uh, I think it'll be a miracle. Right. So, you know, just like I would take the under uh, on the Fed's federal funds rate number next year, um, I will take the over on this number all day long. Yeah. So I'm curious to hear what you think. Well, the, you know, the kind of two things. One is there is I don't I'm not going to say it's different this time, but there is there is an interesting situation with employment that's occurring um, right now. Let me see if I can find this chart real quick while I'm while I'm rambling. Um but remember that we just shut down the economy back in 2020, right? And, and so we we just literally just fired everybody that we could fire at that point, just said, hey, you know what? We don't have a job for you, so go home. Now, normally what happens during an economic expansion is that you create jobs, right? So we create a bunch of, you know, the economy's expanding. So everybody's spending more money. And as they spend more money, then we create more jobs because that's more demand. We got to produce more product. And so that puts that gives more people money to spend, which they spend more money and so forth and so on. Right. So you have these. So during an expansion within the economy, you are creating more and more jobs. And so let me uh, share this chart with you to, to kind of explain this a little bit better. And, then, and all I'm doing is I'm just making a potential case why unemployment may be a little different this time. Um, if there's no guarantee, but this is full-time employees relative to the working age population. Now, the reason this is important is because I can work three part-time jobs, right? But I don't necessarily have healthcare benefits. I don't have a 401k plan. I don't have, you know, all the other stuff. And generally, part-time jobs pay lower wages than a full-time job, right? Salary, salary positions. So if I'm going to sustain a standard of living, I'm, you know, I've got my house, I've got my wife, I've got two kids and you know, I've probably got to have a full-time job to, to make that work and, and to make the economy work. I really need full-time employment. So if we go back in history and kind of look at periods where we've had economic expansions, you see that, you know, after a recession, full-time employment falls, as you would expect, right? So this is where you normally get these kind of big jumps in the unemployment rate. And then after the recession is over, the, we then be creating new jobs. The economy heats up. It's doing great. We keep creating more full-time jobs. And, and really through the 80s and the 90s, we were creating more and more full-time jobs. In fact, we had a peak and uh, you know, just prior to the dot-com crash, and 53% of the population had full-time jobs. Um, you know, following the dot-com crash, we you know, uh, started doing a whole lot of this financial engineering stuff. And so um, from 2003, four through 2008, we got back to 52 and a half percent full-time employment. And then we had the financial crisis and kind of devastated the economy. So following that big downdraft, um, we then had 
a fairly decent economic recovery. And so from 2009 through 2020, we had rallied that all the way back. Full-time employment relative to the working age population got back to 50%. Now here's, the, here, now, here's my point about all this. These were, and, and outside the financial crisis, right? It, it, you know, you, you, you can't really call that a normal thing because Lehman failed and the housing problem and all that. But economically, it was kind of a normalized recession, kind of what you would expect to have. We, we, we lost a lot of jobs during that recession. And then we gained most of them back in, in the next expansion. Now, here's the interesting thing. Now, I'm getting us all to this point of just what we just went through. So in 2019, the world is, is doing fine, apparently, and we're all good. And, and apparently nobody saw the recession coming, even though in 2019, there were recessionary indicators going off everywhere. The recession was coming. We just didn't have the trigger for it yet. And so we got back to 50% employment, full-time employees relative to the working age population, back to 50%. Then we said, hey, everybody go home. You're fired, you're done, we're shutting down the economy, go home. Now, since then, you hear a lot of economic commentators in the media talk about, you know, the current administration has, hired, has created more new jobs than any other president ever in history, 12 million new jobs. That's not exactly a true statement. All we did was put those people back to work. And so here's my point, Adam, is that in the next recession, unless it's going to be a shutdown of the economy because of the next COVID you know, strain or whatever, if it's a normal recession, we might not see this big surge in unemployment because, yes, companies hire back a lot of employees, but they didn't hire back all those employees plus add a whole bunch of new ones. So they're kind of running lean and mean, so to speak. And we've seen layoffs over the last year. You know, you're not, you have talked about it quite a bit you know, in the tech sector where they did actually hire a bunch of unnecessary people. We've seen a lot of layoffs there. But in kind of the broad swath of the economy, we didn't create a bunch of new jobs. You'll see in the latest jobs report, we're only at 50.22% of full-time employees relative to the working age population versus 50.6% prior to 2020. So what that argues for, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying that you won't have a big surge in unemployment, but you know it's going to be maybe more challenging because we never, we didn't really overhire, so to speak. We didn't create a bunch of new jobs that we didn't have before. All we did was put people back to work. Okay, um, that's not too dissimilar from a theory that um, Mike Shedlock uh, has, and and Mike and I actually have a, a sort of a side bet on this, which I hope he wins because I'm taking the over on the unemployment yeah. rate next year. Um, so for society, I hope Mike's right. Um, you know, he basically says, uh, "Look, we have we have an aging workforce, right?" And so, uh, you know, you hear that that comment about 10,000 baby boomers hit retirement age every day. And so you can kind of extrapolate there's about 10,000 baby boomers that are taking themselves out of the game uh, every day. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, in in uh, during the pandemic, when we did all this stuff, um, not only were people continuing to hit a point where they could retire, but also we goosed financial markets like crazy with all the stimulus, right? So a lot of people hit their retirement goals sooner. So they were able to eject sooner, which is probably one of the reasons why we've had difficulty getting back to exactly where we were pre-pandemic employment-wise. Um, so, you know, Mike's argument is sort of a leaky bucket argument, right? Which is um, as people lose their jobs, you also have boomers that are kind of retiring. And so those people who are losing their jobs will get rehired right away because there is this, this constant stream of, of vacancies by the retiring boomers going on. And that may happen, you know, we'll, we'll see. My, my comment or my, my 
you know, opinion is colored by the fact, um, you know, from the lag effects that we talk about so much, right? Which is just that we have interest rates at what I believe to be sort of an unsustainably high level for the economy here. Um, Powell just gave us the, yet again, the higher for longer, higher for longer speech, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and yep. so the, the longer we're higher for longer, the more the, you know, the force of gravity is pulling down an economic growth, which is going to pull down everything from consumer spending to corporate profits. So, you know, if there's just fewer jobs, if companies are having to down, like they might be running lean right now, but if they are forced to run leaner by the lag effect, that's just going to have to be reflected eventually in the unemployment rate. And that's that's sort of what I'm thinking about. No, um, and that, no. and that, that doesn't even necessarily mean we have to have a recession. But if right, we have no. a recession, then that gets even worse. Yeah, no. But the, my point is, is that, and look, I agree with you. Um, my point is, is that, you know, for people that are calling, oh, we're going to have we're going to have an unemployment rate like we saw in the, during the financial crisis of, you know, 10, 11, 12 percent. I don't think you're going to see that. Maybe you see. I, five, I agree, too. Yeah, maybe you see five, six percent unemployment, right? Yeah. I think four. I think four percent is a bit ridiculous, but because you're almost there, right? Um, yeah. If you see any kind of slowdown, you're going to be at five or six percent. But that would be kind of and look, five percent unemployment is kind of you know this three point three, three point two percent unemployment is a ridiculous number um, because first of all, if only fifty percent of the people have full full time, you know, work. Do you really, you know, when you say that the economy is at 3% unemployment, right? That means that 97% of people are working. All you got to do is go look at, you know, how many people are working part-time jobs, three part-time jobs, not working at all, trying to find a job to know that more than 3% of the population is unemployed. So right, right. The, whole and, measure, and, the whole measure of unemployment is, is completely nonsense. But, you know, the fact you've only got 50% of your population working full time tells you all you really need to know about how strong the economy actually is. Yeah, yeah. And the discussion for another day, we've touched on it in the past, but the unemployment rate doesn't count working age adults who are, quote unquote, not in the labor force, which right. are basically it's a cohort that the government has basically given up on ever being employed in the future. And that's over 100 million people. <laughs> yeah, but I bet if you ask them if they would like a full-time job with benefits, that there's probably a big chunk of that 100 million that would say, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, as you said, it, it, the unemployment rate is a highly bastardized number. Um, all right. Well, look, um, one of the other things that Darius talked about was, um, you know, he gave a bunch of reasons why he thinks stocks could could still surprise to the upside going forward. Um, but he made two observations, which I thought were interesting, and, and, I, and I think your data would agree with this, but you tell me if not. One is that he said stocks tend to outperform in the years prior to a recession. So the year right before a recession, stocks tend to outperform. I think his, I think his data said on average, the market performed about 16% uh, in the year before a recession. And then he said over 50% of that return. So I think it was 9% of the 16%. So like 55 or whatever percent of the total gain. He said happened in the last three months before recession hits. So I sort of made this analogy of like the party gets like really raging, like the, the strippers and the cocaine come out, you know, right before the police arrive, right? And uh, uh, you're nodding as I'm saying all this. And so, you know, if let, let's assume we're right for a moment uh, that a recession hits by April of next year, then we would expect sort of, you know, January to, to March 
to to maybe be a bit of a face ripper period of time for the markets. I mean, I'm not guaranteeing this, but I'm just sharing the data that that Darius had. Yeah, no, no, and he's right. Think about it this way too. Uh, and again, this is why the Federal Reserve is being so cautious about what they say to the markets and why you should basically throw it out the window because they can't say we're done hiking rates because you would have this market up five six percent tomorrow. Um, and 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 again, so as I said earlier. Higher asset prices lead to consumer confidence, makes everybody feel better if they go spend more money. Not what the Fed wants. They're trying to cool things off a bit. Right. Hey, sorry uh, to interrupt, but I, I want you to address this in your answer. Let's say the Fed does, does keep saying this, hey, there's another hike coming in 2023, but we get to January 1st with no rate hike. Does the market then say, oh, I guess there was no rate hike, and then it goes off to the races because of that? that that's That's where I was headed. Yeah. Uh, is that, it, you know, so what's going to happen here over the course of the next month or so? So first of all, let's talk about, you know, September uh, almost over. October could still be a little bit sloppy, just season seasonal trends, those type of things. So, you know, there's no guarantee this market's going to start advancing in October. November, December, your odds are much better. Uh, three reasons. And, and, and sorry to interrupt yet again, but just because what you just said in that sentence was basically the title of one of your articles this week. October weakness before year-end run, right? <laughs> and, and, and there's three reasons for that, which all kind of line up with where Darius is, and I agree with him, uh, what he's saying, is that, you know, from just a, a kind of a fundamental standpoint, you know, earnings are about to come in. We, and I've, you know, I've got a chart in that article of how much we've lowered the estimates for the third quarter um, since last year. So the, the bar for companies to beat estimates is very, very low. So, we're going to have another season where we have 75% of companies beating earnings estimates, you know, woo. Um, so that's going to be, that'll help give a little lift to stocks, right? Oh, man, you know, things aren't as bad as we thought. They're beating these estimates. Well, they were a dollar. Now they were 10 cents. So they made 11 cents, you know. So if you actually look at it that way, it doesn't sound that great, right? But mm-hmm. from the market standpoint, oh, they're beating estimates. It's all great. Revenues are good. So that's going to give a little bit of lift to stocks. Two, is that uh, once we get past earnings season, which will be you know, really the bulk of earnings season, the, the, you know, the S&P 500 will pretty much have most of the earnings out of the way by the end of October, which opens up the whole blackout period for companies to start buying back shares. And there's roughly about $5 billion a day in share buybacks that need to be done by the end of the year. So that's going to provide another lift to the markets going into year end. And then, and then, and then, kind of lastly is just you. You're going to get to this part. And this is the part that really kind of aligns with with Darius. Is all this concern and angst about the Fed is going to start getting forgotten as as we kind of start to as markets start going up. They're going the market will start doubting the Fed a little bit. They'll start saying, "Oh, I think the Fed's actually done. Let's you know. I think the rate. I think the next thing's going to happen is a rate cut, and markets are going to start taking off." But at that point, that's when the economic data catches up and, you know, and something eventually kind of breaks or cracks within the markets from these, you know, these you know, kind of abnormally high interest rates. And all of a sudden, everybody's got to start backpedaling. And the estimates are way too high for 2024. Those are going to have to come down. Stocks are way overvalued relative to where they should be in this interest rate environment. So valuations are going to come down. And the only way to get valuations down when earnings are declining is to bring down prices faster. So that's why when you get the next year, that risk of a recessionary kind of sell off in the market becomes much more prevalent. Okay, And look, I I know it's frustrating folks that have been watching this channel for it's since its start, right, two and a half years ago and have seen a lot of people come on this channel and talk about, you know, all of the 
very compelling data that suggests that um, current economic growth isn't sustainable, that current market valuations aren't sustainable. Um, and then, you know, especially of late, since I've had a number of people on who are, you know, saying, hey, but higher prices in a lot of these assets are probably more likely in the short term. You know, it, it can be kind of crazy making to say, wait a minute, you know, you're saying one thing with one side of your mouth and another thing with another side of your mouth. And I just want to underscore this. You know, we try to do this, but I, I, I just want to really underscore it, which is you, you just as you go to war with the army you have, not the army you wish you had, you, you have to invest in the markets you have, not the markets that you wish you have. And the old saying of the market can remain irrational long, much longer than you can remain insolvent. Um, it, it really is sort of a long time truism. And so you've, 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 you've got to put your main thesis in place and develop some positioning for your main thesis. But then you have to ask yourself, okay, hopefully I'm right in that thesis at some point in time, but what is happening right now along the ground? And you got to make sure that you don't get destroyed in the period before your thesis may prove out to be right here. And, you know, what we hear from long-term experienced market technicians and analysts and, and and capital managers like Lance and many other folks that I've interviewed recently is look, you know, in, until we see violation of certain trend lines in the market, we have to play it as if the uptrend is still in play. Um, and look, there's nothing wrong with sitting on the sidelines. You know, if you just decide uh, you, you don't want to do that, that's fine. You just have to make the conscious decision that, all right, I'm going to miss out on gains because of that. And, and if the market takes off, I might miss out on a lot of gains. And that's actually fine if you're comfortable with the risk reward adjustment that you're making at that point in time. Um, but if you are saying, you know, I'm going to put all my chips on a super, on, on you know, any one event happening, but let's say the bear side, and then the markets have a runaway, like, like Lance is saying here, I mean, one, you'll be frustrated, you'll, you'll, you'll be missing it. But if you've taken positions that suffer as the market goes up, like a short position or whatnot, um, you know, you, you could get killed before you're right. <laughs> so anyways, yeah. Lance, I want to let you opine on this because I, I know you get people emailing you this all the time. Yeah, I do. And, and look, and, and the, really the bottom line is, is that you've got to really kind of, kind of come to this realization. I get a lot of emails from people and they're like, I want to figure out how I can just get the upside and no downside. That's not investing. It doesn't work. You've got to be willing to accept the downside if you're going to take some upside. Um, you can mim you can minimize that downside risk, right? You can you can limit the losses, but you can't eliminate. It. Right. Um, so and to do that, you have to compromise on your expected upside too. Exactly. Yeah, you give up a little of everywhere. Look, I mean, you could to your point now for the first time ever, uh, at least in the last twenty years, you can actually sit on the sidelines and earn money. You, know, you get five percent in the money market right now, so yeah. there's not a, a, a in a real return, which yeah, you haven't done forever. <laughs> exactly. I mean, so you get five percent sitting in cash. Um, and so you can still make money in this market, but, but what's always, you know, what's always going to get investors is this, is that they're going to do that, right? So I'm just going to, you know, like, I don't, I don't, I don't like this market. It's crazy. I'm just going to put my money in cash 5%. And then this was, this was last year also, right? So we talked about all these people that were, you were buying short-term treasury bills and all this stuff, mm -hmm. uh, cause they didn't like the crazy market. And then the market runs up 17%. And now they're all selling their T-bills to jump into the stock market right as it begins to correct. Now we're all crazy again, so I don't want that risk. So now I'm going to go back into T-bills just at the time that the stock market is going to take off again. But this isn't new, right? This is investor psychology going back through the markets over the last 100 years. Investors always buy high. They wind up selling low. 
And the reason is because of, of psychology. And, and it's like, oh, I'm missing out. I got to get in. And by the time they figure out they need to get in, the market's already run up. And now you're at risk of a correction. So the market corrects. And it's like, okay, well, I got to get out now. And they're always back and forth between what the market's doing. And this is why, you know, good investors, good long-term investors, the Warren Buffetts, the Peter Lynch's, they understand the risk. And when markets are going through a down period, they reduce their risk, but they're maintaining their long biases on valuations and fundamentals and those type of things, which are going to play out over time. And so if you manage your portfolio properly, you can create growth long term. The problem that we've that we've done to investors, and particularly since 2000, when with the Internet and tele financial television and CNBC, is that we've turned everybody into speculators, you know. Everybody looks at how my portfolio do from January 1st to now. doesn't matter, right? But that's all we look at. And then we have to make decisions based on that. That has nothing to do with your time horizon or where you're trying to get to or what you're trying to invest for. But we're also short term now. We're just gambling in a casino. And that, and, and as is always the case, the house always wins. Yeah. And um, one point on this, then I want to move on to bonds, um, okay. is uh, because of that, um, what people do is they say, okay, end of the year, how did my portfolio do this year versus, you know, my hopes for it, right? And if it if, if they're disappointed, right, let's say they have, an, it, it, whether they're doing it themselves or they have an advisor, if they're disappointed, they say, okay, look, well, who did better? Okay, well, I'm going to go follow that person next, right? And there's nothing necessary, there's nothing wrong about trying to follow somebody who you think is better than you. But if you're just basing it on who outperformed this year, you actually are putting yourself at a position to get chewed up by reversion to the mean, right? Where you're looking at the guy who had the outperform year, right? So you jump on his bandwagon and then just math being what it is, he's going to revert to the mean at some point, maybe actually the next year, right? So you're sort of chasing these gains that are actually historic gains that are setting you up for a higher probability of future underperformance. And I've just seen, I've seen so many people chase that and wonder, why is this not working for me? And they don't realize that it's actually a lot of mathematics that's playing against them. No, that's, that's very true. You know, and it, it's interesting because, um, and I've talked about this before, is that if you take a look at uh, Callan as a good example of this, they, they produce these uh, kind of annual rates of, of return for various stocks. And, you know, and, and you can go look at this kind of, a, they call it their periodic table of returns. And they'll break down each year, large cap, mid cap, small cap, international, gold, you know, commodities, whatever. And then they rank them top performing to bottom performing. It's a great table to look at because if you're thinking about, oh, I'm going to go put my money with this guy because he did really well last year. Go look at this table before you do it. Because what it'll tell you is, is that whatever's performing in one year is probably going to be the worst performer the next year. And that, that reversion, to your point, happens very regularly. You might get you know, emerging markets being the top performer for one or two years, and it goes right to the bottom of performance the next year. Whatever was terrible last year is on the top of the list this year. So what was terrible last year? And what's been terrible this year, bonds. So if the reversion to the mean and historics play out to norm, you can probably bet bonds are going to be your best performing asset class next year. Great. And, you know, for bonds, and we've talked about this, they, they are on track to have their third consecutive down year, which I think, Lance, has never happened, you yeah. know, since, since we started tracking them back in the 1700s or whatever, right? Um, right? So never. So probability is low, you know, flipping a coin, you know, likely to getting four heads in a row is, is pretty low. 
um, you know, it can't is, happen. Pardon me. Doesn't mean it can't happen, but it's yeah. but it's quite low. But 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 that's just odds in in, in the, the probability of statistics. Let's actually talk about fundamentals here. So your partner Michael Leibowitz uh, wrote a piece this week, um, basically asking, "Hey, is it different this time for bonds?" Um, you know, or basically asking the question, "Hey, you know, the b- bonds have been underperforming." Um, you know, is, is there a reason why folks should be jumping out of bonds here? He basically says no. And the punchline of his piece is that he says that yields are two to two and a half percent too high um, versus where he calculates sort of fair value is. Um, and I mean, that that's a pretty big statement, right? I mean, that's basically saying that the 10 year has to basically come down by about 50 percent, right? And and that's right. And that's just to beat normalized term premium. If you get into a recession, it's going to zero. Um, and and just the reason is, is ultimately is that, and as we've showed you about a million times, you know, uh, interest rates are a function of economic growth, inflation, and wages. And so what happens if you have a recession? Economic growth slows, inflation slows, wages fall, which interest rates have to adjust for that. Because you have to remember, and we've talked about this before, what people forget um, when they look at bonds, is that bonds are loans, and it's me loaning money to somebody else. And we 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 tend to look at bonds as this equity investment, right? I'm going to buy it, so it goes up and down or price, and I can make some money. But that's not the way to look at how the bond market works. The bond market is loaning money to somebody else, and I'm loaning it to them for a term. So I'm going to loan money to Adam for 10 years. Well, I've got to factor some things in there. If I'm going to ask Adam for a 4% yield on my money, I'm assuming that for the next 10 years, because Adam's going to pay me 4% every year, I'm assuming for the next 10 years that inflation will be less than 4%, economic growth will be less than 4%, which is my opportunity cost of another investment that might make me more money. And I'm assuming that uh, inflation will be less than 4% because my 4% has to compensate for inflation. So it, it's it's completely logical that interest rates are a reflection of the three things that drive the economy, because if the economy is going to grow at six or seven percent, and which is you know kind of the, the thesis of a lot of these people expecting higher, you know, oh, interest rates are only going to go up from here. We're going to go back. This is going to be a repeat of the 70s. Uh, in fact, this is today's article on the website right now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's called That 70s Show. And this is the thesis going back to, you know, that the market's going to replay out what happened in the 1970s. And I'll show you some, I can show you some charts from that article here in a second. But the premise to get back to eight, six, seven, eight percent economic growth and to have inflation and interest rates running at six, seven, eight, nine percent, you just don't have the economic makeup for it. And you don't have the ability to generate six percent rates of economic growth in an economy that's got 33 trillion in government debt. Right. And, and and if economic growth stays sort of where it is right now, but yields go up to six plus percent, I mean, this economy just becomes like, a, 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 you know, a, a melting inferno. I don't, I don't know if there's such a thing <laughs> as a melting inferno. Right. But I mean, it just it just becomes a, a dumpster fire. I mean, it just, it just cannot sustain that type of cost of debt. Correct. Uh, well, that's right. And, and again, because w- w- without tremendous economic growth. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, it's just because it's a function of how the economy works and interest rates are, 
you know, directly a function. And here, let me share this one chart from with, with, from the article because I think it really kind of brings home the point here. Of, you know, everybody's saying, oh, well, you know, inflation's got to go up from here and economic growth has got to grow and it's all going to be fine. Stock market's going to go up and, you know, the Fed's going to have this soft landing scenario. Um, and a lot of people want to channel Arthur Burns back in the, in the 1970s. But um, this is this is a chart of the 1970s, uh, 60s and 70s for the market. And what's important to understand about this chart, so the red is the Fed funds rate. That's the effective rate of the Fed funds. The, the blue line is inflation. The black line is the stock market. And so every time that you saw inflation go up, the Fed was hiking interest rates. And they would hike rates to the point that it broke the back of inflation. But it wasn't just the 70s. See, we only focus on the 70s. See, everybody forgets to look back at early 70s. The, 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 even in the 60s, the Federal Reserve was fighting this same type of rising trend in inflation. Now, why was, why was inflation rising in the 60s and the 70s? Well, we have to go back to the 40s to understand that. So in the 1940s, we're fighting World War II. The women are all working in the factories because all the men are overseas fighting. And so we've got a limit on everything, right? You have to get you know, the old term government cheese, right? So there's a, there's a limit on everything. You can't get it because everything's going to the war effort. So we're producing left and right, everything for the war, sending it overseas to, to the soldiers. Well, the war ends and the soldiers now come home. Well, what's the first thing they do when they come back home? They go to the factories. The women go home. They, they build houses. They start having babies and raising families. And they start producing stuff. And we're manufacturing everything. Why? Japan was hit by two nuclear bombs. There is no Japan manufacturing at this point. Europe is ravaged by you know, years of the, of the war. Um, so there is no production going on anywhere else in the world. The rest of the world is rebuilding from the war. We're doing all the work to rebuild those countries. So we're just producing economic growth at six, seven, eight, nine percent. Wages are running at six, seven, eight, nine percent. And when you have economic growth and wages rising during this period, what's inflation and interest rates going to do? They're going to go up. Why? Because I have more demand. More people want to buy stuff. So if, if more people want to buy stuff, then they and they've got money because wages are going up. That, that means that as a business, I can charge more money. So prices go up. The more prices go up, the more people are buying stuff because they're fine. The economy is doing well. So they're still consuming. I keep raising my prices. I'm hiring more people to work, giving them more jobs. Remember, we have to produce first in order to consume. And so this cycle is going on. And so all through the 60s and the 70s, we're just producing a massive amount of stuff. 80% of the economy is manufacturing, 20% is services. But even during that period, every time the Fed hikes rates, you had a bear market, a recession, a market crash, some, some type of event that was going on during that entire period. So when you have these, these, these periods where you had a recession and a bear market, interest, in, you know, interest rates and inflation would decline, and then the economy would get back on its feet again, and here we go through the cycle. We don't have that today. We are 80% services, which have a near negative multiplier effect in the economy. You've got back then also, at this period in time, household debt to, to net worth was about 60% of their net worth. It's 160% today. Mm. And, and so you don't have the ability to generate the economic capacity and to be able to, and then, you know, back in the, in the 90s, um, we were taking out mortgage loans at 10% to buy houses. That was okay because we were making enough money, we could afford the interest payment. 
now you talk about a 10% mortgage and you're just going to have total devastation, you know, in the overall housing market. People just can't sustain it. Uh, let me jump forward here a couple of uh, uh, a chart. So then uh, this is my point about wages and inflation. Look at wages and inflation from 1965 to 1980. Look at that nice rising trend. And, and that's organic, natural, growing wages and inflation. So as wages were growing, you had these bouts of inflation, exactly as you would expect. Beginning in 1980, when we started financializing everything, we haven't seen wage growth ever since. The only reason we had wage growth in 2020 and 2021 is because of all the stimulus that we sent to households. Everybody had to go hire a bunch of people. There was nobody to hire at that point. And so we were having to overpay for the jobs. Now that's all going to reverse. And we've already seen Walmart come out saying, hey, we're cutting salaries. That's yeah. going to happen in mass across the board. Wages are going to continue to decline back to norms. Um, but um, this is the economic composite now. So this is an economic composite of GDP, wages, and rates. As I said before, there's a very high correlation between that economic composite and what inflation is doing. And so if you're having an economy that's slowing down, wages and rates will follow. And as such, inflation will follow that. And there's an 85% historic correlation between that economic composite and inflation. So you can almost bet your bottom dollar with 85% confidence that over the next year or so, inflation is going to be close to 2% or less because economic growth is going to be less uh, probably than 2%. Um, this is this is debt versus the economy. As I was saying a second ago, this is a chart I was trying to get to. Um, but you can see that personal income per capita in the 60s and 70s was well above household debt per capita. That's not been the case since 1980 in the US. And it's only getting worse here. Wow, yeah. So again, the ability is important. What this is, this is my favorite chart. This is what I call my consumer spending gap. Um, there, there's no term in England, you know, as you're stepping across into the, the, the subway, it says mind the gap, right? Mind the so, gap, yep. Mind the gap. Um, what this chart shows you is, is that you have the point to where income and savings. So I'm, I'm earning money and I'm saving money because I'm making more than I'm spending. And the black line is, is debt. So as long as I'm making more money and have savings, then I'm okay, right? And I can take on a little bit of debt. That's all right. Now, beginning right in 2009, when the financial crisis happened, all of a sudden, I'm spending everything I'm making. I've spent everything in savings, and I'm having to supplement the difference between what I need to spend in order to sustain my standard of living with debt. And right now, it takes, on average, about $6,600 per person per year just to sustain their standard of living. So how do you square that with substantially higher interest rates? Right? Right. You, you, you don't. And, and sorry, just, just help me and maybe a few other viewers fully understand this. So is it basically saying that uh, there's a period here at which, I mean, essentially people are going into debt annually to fund right. their their current lifestyle, right. So you take your, you take your the, the current living standard, right? The, the the and and you can calculate that. So we know about what the average cost of living for a household of four is in the U.S. So we take a look at disposable personal income because that's what they have after they pay taxes, and say, okay, now between their disposable personal incomes and what they potentially have in savings, so we add the savings rate in because they have some money sitting in the bank from the stimulus, right? And there's and there's, there's a very interesting little little note here I'll, I'll throw in a second. But 
So you take a look at that and take a look at the difference between what it's costing them to live and how much they're having to fuel uh, that standard of living with debt. And that's why you see this debt really since 2009 began to really just kind of accelerate higher because it's taking more and more debt to sustain that gap between um, their disposable personal income and savings and their cost of living continues to expand. And so that's the problem with that. So you see that little spike in 2020 where just for a moment, there was actually a positive tick and they didn't need to take on debt. And you can see if you look at, oops, sorry, let me back up, didn't mean to touch my screen. Um, so you can see in 2020 where you have that little spike above the zero line, yep. debt actually declined for a moment. So for a moment, right, all that stimulus money that we sent to households, they were able to make ends meet and not take on credit card debt. And we actually saw like credit cards get paid off a little bit, which was awesome. Mm -hmm. But then, but then as we wrote about, and, and there was a bunch of articles about how the uh, Biden uh, supports were going to reduce poverty and in, in the economy and all this. I said, yeah, it'll do that for one year and then it's over. And that was that year. So for one year, you had this moment where all of a sudden people could make ends meet because they had free money from the government. That was MMT on steroids right there. And then right after that, it was it was not only back in the hole, but drastically worse. And you can see that there was a very sharp decline in the differential between incomes and, and the gap that they needed to fill following that stimulus because everybody had kind of overspent and over kind of, you know, over consumed. And so now all that is playing now catch up back and, and they're having to play this big catch up and it's just pushing them further and further in debt faster and faster as we go. Okay, so two things here. Now, obviously this situation worsens as interest rates on revolving consumer credit go higher and higher. And right now they're pretty much at, at record highs, right? That's Not right. only are the debt balances at record highs, but the interest that's being charged at record highs. So they're sort of falling into this hole at an accelerating rate, not good, right? So my question is, is, is there a way to sort of calculate, like what's the terminal limit to this, right? I mean, you, you can't just borrow ad infinitum, right? Uh, at some point, uh, you run out of ability to borrow. Uh, either your creditors cut you off or, or you, you just can't afford to borrow anymore because you're not going to be able to make your existing debt payments. So well, how close are we to that terminus, do you think? You, you know, you, 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 there's no way to know. Um, and the reason is, is consumers are very creative about where they get money. You know, we talk about $1.7 trillion worth of student loan debt. There is more than a, a little bit of that debt that was taken on and used for other stuff other than school. Oh, yeah, we know for sure. Some healthy percentage of it was yeah. used for for other, for other uh, yeah, other uses than as originally intended. Correct. And then seeing that didn't happen prior to 2000, when, when Obama took over, President Obama took over the student loan program. That stuff didn't happen previously that because you had to go to a private lender. It had to be used for college. There were very strict rules. When the government took it over, colleges went, oh, free money from the government? Yeah, I'm raising my prices. Right. And it was like, oh, you can, I can take out a student loan and go on a trip to Cabo? Yeah, I'll do that. Because they didn't think about the consequences of all this. So my point, though, is that consumers are very creative. You know, right after 2009, we saw a massive spike in disability. Um, the financial crisis for somehow turned into a whole bunch of disability claims. Not really. It's pretty easy to kind of fudge disability and, and to get and to claim money for it. So we saw a big spike in disability claims, saw big uses of, you know, student loan payments, uh, access to other types of, of lending credit. Over the last couple of years, in particular, 
you know, what have we seen a lot of? We've seen a lot of these, you know, uh, payday loans and these other companies that are willing to, you know, fund loans to individuals, uh, just, you know, go online and say, hey, you want some money, apply here. And it's kind of private lending. Uh, so, so consumers right. or, or, or pay, 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 was it pay as you go or whatever, you know, online, you oh, you can buy this thing from Amazon and it'll take you 10 easy payments over the next two years. Right. Yeah. And, and so the, my point though, is, is that, you know, it's like, where's that terminal limit? The problem is, is we don't know where that terminal limit is because of two factors. One, consumers keep taking on more debt because they're financially, they don't know better. Uh, I don't want to say they're financially responsible. They just don't know better because nobody ever taught them about the evils of debt. And if more or, people- or, think, or they think they have no choice. Or they think they have no choice. So we can't really blame them for that. Who can we actually blame for this is, is the product market because when there's demand in any market, Wall Street, private individuals, private companies, et cetera, they're going to come up with new ideas. Look, all these pay-as-you-go loans and these, these private uh, companies that are issuing out you know, private loans, these were all created just in the last few years to meet debt, debt demand. I couldn't get approval at the bank. Uh, the bank turned me down. I got crappy credit. That's okay. We'll loan you money. And so they kind of crowdsource a whole bunch of people and Adam chips in five bucks and I chip in five bucks and we loan Joe over here a hundred dollars of, you know, $5 donations from everybody. We hope he pays it back <laughs> someday, you know, but you know that, but the market's very creative about coming up with new ways to give more people money. So, you know, that point, you know, that terminal point to where the whole thing just falls apart. I don't know. It hasn't happened in Japan yet and they're, they're still going. So you know, right. I don't know where that terminal point is. But but hang with me on this. Okay, so so knowing exactly where it is 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 hard to pinpoint, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, and it'll likely last longer than you and I could think it ever could because of the creativity of humans and and the product market and whatnot. Um, but I just want to I want to hang on this for a minute though. But but you do believe there is a terminal point here. In other words, let me ask the question differently. Yeah. Is there a credible scenario where this reverses and we dig ourselves out of this? Or do we just keep descending, being as creative as we can be, but at some point there is, you know, a reckoning line where it's just, okay, the game's up. Um, the answer is that the game will be up at some point and the the markets will tell us when that game is here. Um, the, we will never do it by choice. And, you know, this is the problem with Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. This is the same problem that we have with government spending. You know, it, it's so easy to issue debt and spend money that we don't have. And that's much better than the alternative of telling people no, because if I tell people no, they can't have money, then I don't get elected. So, you know, that's that's no fun. So, you know, at some point, and this is, again, we've been looking at Japan for 30 years, kind of waiting for this point to show up, and it hasn't yet. But there is a point somewhere along the way. I mean, Argentina defaulted, Russia, you know, Russia defaulted. I mean, there is a point to where it breaks. Just nobody knows where that point is. Yeah. So, and, again, just hang with me here for a second is, is the rationale behind all this, which really is this question. And I know I'm asking you to, to, to really guesstimate, right? When that reckoning hits, what does that world look like? Uh, when these consumers who are using this to fund their lifestyle, this isn't necessarily to go, you know, to Disney five times a year with your kids. Eventually, this gets down to just eating and keeping a roof over your head. When they can no longer, the average consumer can no longer borrow to do that. What does that world look like? 
it's it's a it's the Great Depression. And I, if you're still you know, so this chart I've got up here is the average economic growth by cycle going back to 1790. So go back to Washington, we're in an agricultural cycle. We had a big bunch of spending going into uh, you know World War II. Um, and then we went through a debt reversion following that. We had to pay off that debt coming back from World War II, but that was the Great Depression. Um, the last time you had a debt reversion of even a small magnitude was the financial crisis. And I don't need to tell you about that. So, you know, if you ever have a debt reversion of, you know, the, the actual total debt is a percentage of GDP. And I'm talking about total debt now. When, and, uh, so when you look at my chart, it's 475% of debt to GDP. That's consumer debt, household debt, corporate debt, government debt. That's every that's all the debt. So to get to the point that you have a, a reversion of debt, you're going and, and again, you, you can take a look at when as that debt's been rising, economic growth just keeps slowing. So, you know, eventually we'll be, you know, we'll be in a depressionary state. And when we get there, you'll have a, a big debt reversion at that point. And then you'll start maybe sorting things out on the other side. Jeez. Um Okay, I, I don't want to get too dark here and whatnot, but but that I mean, what you just said is that's, a pretty that's, big that's deal. Not, but that's not. This isn't in our lifetime, though. You and I will be dead. So this well, is, and that, so this that's where I'm going. And and I just want to note on this chart, right? There's a, a website out there. In fact, I interviewed one of the the guys who built it probably a year and a half ago or so in this channel. It's called um, "What What the F Happened in 1971." And it's just this collection of all these charts that show how both on a kind of a monetary and financial and, and economic trajectory, we just started breaking all of the historical averages following 1971. Of course, one of their main points is, is that's the year that Nixon took the, the U.S. off the gold standard. And that's when politicians were freed of the constraints of a hardbacked monetary system. And you can just see in this chart. Yeah, I can see where I was born in 1971 on this chart. And that's right when everything just starts shooting on. That's not even a 45 degree angle, right? That's like a 65, 70 degree <laughs> angle. <laughs> I'll get my, let me get my protractor out. I'll tell you real quick. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but it's just, it's just bananas. But yeah. So, I mean, to your point, I mean, I'll ask one last question on this and then we'll move on. <clears throat> but is you, we don't know when this is, when does your gut tell you that that, Kind of Great Depression scale reckoning would happen. Um, you know, boomers are probably dead. Are Xers still around? Uh, is this something that millennials and Zs or people who have millennial and Z children, you know, need to prepare them to say, look, like it or not, this is probably going to happen on your watch. Is going to be after it, that. It, what do you think? It, 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 it's you know, I again don't know, but I you're pontificating here. Yeah. Best guess. I, I would guess it's tail end of Gen X and mostly, uh, sorry, not Gen X, they'll be dead. Uh, mostly tail end of millennials and Gen Z. Gen, Gen Z is probably going to wind up with the brunt of this. Okay. It's probably not going to be a party right up until then, right? I assume that things, you know, no, it'll it was be. A, in 1927, it was a party to 29. So well, do you think it'll be a blow off <laughs> like that? Or, or do you think it'll be more of a grind before the bottom falls out when it gets real bad? No, it's normally boom and bust. I mean, there's, you know, even in the 60s and the 70s, the market was grinding higher, even though we kind of had these rolling bear markets. Nobody remembers that. But we we had these, you know, kind of the market would run up and you sell off 20 percent and the market would run up, you sell off 20 percent. And in 1974, the bottom fell out. Right. And it's always kind of that similarity. It's almost like this. We wake up one morning and it's like, 
oh crap, what just happened? And then the whole world kind of falls, you know, uh, same thing with uh, the financial crisis. There's this, there's something that breaks and whatever that is that, that ultimately breaks, whether it's a financial institution or something, but something happens that triggers a, 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 a massive aha moment in the market and everybody panics. And that's, that's what, that's why it's always kind of a party until the very end, the cops show up. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Well, let's try to move on to something a little bit less depressing. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I would call any of this optimistic I'm about to walk through, but hopefully it's less depressing than, you know, global uh, longstanding depression. Um, well, you're the one that took it there. I was just telling you it wasn't the seventies. Yeah. Oh, hey, sir, before I move on, pull up the charts that you had again before. Um, uh, Which yeah, one? I think it actually, was it this chart? Um, Is it? Like, yeah, it, 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 it's from the article you were just in. Okay. Uh, what, what does it look like? I mean, what's the title of the, of the chart? I can't remember, but I think it might've been the chart you were just showing there. But the last one about the day. Yeah. Uh, not, not about that, but it had, it had, uh, the inflation rate and the S and P and oh, Fed funds rate yeah, on it. Yeah. 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 Hold on. Uh, okay. And, and the point I want to make about this chart is it seems like we can pinpoint on this chart sort of where we are at this cycle compared to past historical cycles. And if you agree with me, then maybe one of the advantages that we have right now as investors is you, you don't always have a high degree of confidence of, of where you are in the cycle. Um, but I think we can kind of feel like we have one. So you, you, there we go. Thanks. This one right here. Uh, well, not that one, that one. There we go. All right. Um, I think this is it. Do me a favor. Just, just punch through the charts again, real quick. Oh, right there. Yeah. Keep there, there, keep going. Keep Wait. going. Inflation, full-time employment. Keep going. Deposit. Keep going. I think it was the first one that you. It might have been the first one. Keep going. Yeah, I think it was the first one. Okay, uh, go back to that one. All right. So you can see here that every time um, inflation starts taking off, um, whoop, go back. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Basically, what you can see here is, 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 yeah, every time the Fed is is forced to hike rates and then pause, right? Um, in most cases, along this data series uh, to contain rising inflation, um, it rises, it pauses. During that pause, it's probably asking itself, okay, we think we did enough. We're not sure if we did too much yet. And then all of a sudden, the recession starts hitting and the Fed says, oh, dear God, we did way too much. We got to cut rates quick, right? And for one reason, this is why you and I are kind of laughing about that gentle glide path that that Powell just showed at his last presser, because that right. totally goes against what history shows, right? As they pause and then they have their oh crap moment and then they they hustle to to bring it down, right? right. But that's basically commensurate with recessions and bear markets, right? Every right. time we kind of get up to that plateau and then quote unquote something breaks or whatever. Um, we it's followed by a bear market and likely in many cases a recession. So we're now we've now gone through the most aggressive rate hike, you know, campaign in history in terms of how high they've hiked in such a short period of time. We now by by your estimation, we're now at the plateau, right? No more rate hikes, right? So we kind of know where we are in the story. 
we're not that far from the bear market and the recession, right? And so, yes, the, the market could party for a few more months, as we talked about earlier, but we may have more confidence than we normally get to get in the markets about what's coming next, given how often this has rhymed in history. What do you think? I think it's right. And, and uh, as we said last year, too, that uh, last year, too, everybody was expecting a recession. We said, we're probably not going to have one because everybody expects one. Now, nobody expects a recession. Everybody expects a soft landing, a no recession scenario, which really sets the market up psychologically for something to happen that then causes everything to kind of cascade over. And then you can have this kind of panic selling. Right now, consumers are are doing okay, right? Their confidence level has been coming back up lately. And they're like, oh, I guess I guess everything's okay. And then something happens. And then all of a sudden, they just shut down spending all at once. And that's what creates that recession. So the fact that we now have more and more people on the camp of no recession, soft landing side actually increases the potential for a recession to occur. All right. Yeah. And you, you know, it's funny because you were warning you're making the other side of that argument heading into this year, right? Which is that everybody's expecting a recession and, and your admission, it sure looks like we're going to have one. But you were saying my spider senses are saying we're not going to have one in 2023, or at least the first half, because so many people are expecting it. it turned out to be absolutely the right assessment. Um, all right here. So, and, and I'm just going to share, uh, uh, I want to get to your, your trades in just a minute, both your personal and your professional ones. Um, you know, I'm going to share that, um, you know, I, I'm increasingly being swayed by the arguments of folks like Lance and Darius and, and a few others uh, saying uh, that the markets may surprise to the upside, you know, in the next quarter or two. Um, that said, in my own personal portfolio, I am I am much more positioned for the disappointment. Right. I don't feel like I can I don't have enough confidence that I can pick up enough nickels in front of a steamroller before that disappointment hits. And I would much personally how I'm wired, I'd much rather miss out on some gains in the short term, but be well positioned if indeed recession hits. The disappointment happens, markets then start rolling over. And I will personally be fine giving up that opportunity cost if the markets do indeed run and I don't participate as much as I otherwise would. I think every person needs to make their own individual assessment of that. And Lance, you as a capital manager, you have a little bit more pressure to be playing the game while it's still played. And, and I know you keep your eye super you know, close on a lot of these um, technical uh, uh, averages and indices, knowing that if they start getting violated, you're going to really start taking a lot more chips off the table. You've got your own early warning detection systems there. Um, but I just want, I want to let people know that like, this is a really interesting period we're getting into. One, because smart people are looking at the same data and coming to different conclusions, right? Some are saying, hey, the markets could really run the rest of this year, as we've talked about. Others are saying, I don't know. You know, I, I, I think the jig may be up here, right? Really interesting time here because some folks are going to be proven very right. Some folks are going to be proven quite wrong. Darius thinks that uh, stocks are going to do quite well. He thinks bonds are going to do poorly uh, up until the recession, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I think you and Michael, you know, may have a slightly different view on that, but you certainly think they're going to do very well at some point near enough that you are increasing your exposure to it. Right. So it's going to be really interesting to see how these smart people who look at the same info differently, how their positioning, you know, plays out coming forward from here. My point that I'm trying to underscore with all this though, is this is really one of those times where you as an investor have to start like choosing a side here, 
right? Where you're like, okay, how much risk do I want to take on and what certain asset groups, given what's going on here versus folks maybe wired like me might say, this may be a time I just want to, as Lance said, sit in the safety of those high 5% rates and, you know, be, you know, don't be too angry if the market runs away, but be real happy, you know, if, 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 the market starts rolling over here and you've kept yourself safe on the sidelines. So I know you wrestle with this every single day, Lance, both as a capital manager, but also getting concerned calls from clients about what should I do and having to talk them into what decisions right for them. So what do you have to say on this? Well, I mean, the, the, the one, the, the one aspect you left out on all that is, and again, uh, that's not a, that's not a hit. Because <laughs> I'm an idiot. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's just, there's an important aspect of this is that you have to include in that a time frame, right? So there's a bunch of people running around saying, oh yeah, stocks are going to do great for this period. Um, or, you know, bonds are going to do terrible or whatever. Right. And just, but you have to have a time frame attached to that. So for instance, my view on bonds is, and, and again, so personally, um, you know, I was on the show, probably a month ago when interest rates or two months ago when interest rates had spiked up, I doubled my bond position. I, I increased it again uh, on Thursday. And I'm going to keep every, every time rates pop up to where they are, I'm just going to keep adding to my bond position. But my time frame is 18 to 36 months to be paid for that investment. So again, I'm not worried about what interest rates do between now and the end of the year. I could care less. What I'm looking for is 18 to 36 months out where I'm going to get paid. And, and I had this conversation actually with a client yesterday. And, and um, I was like, have you ever built a house before? And he's like, yeah, I've built a house. And I said, okay, so you bought the piece of land. He's like, yeah. He says, you know what the value of your land was, right? He says, yeah. And he says, so then you started building a house. What was the value of your house when you started building it? And he goes, well, nothing. I didn't have a house yet. I go, exactly. So it took you how long to build your house? It took me 18 months. Well, when you got your house built, what was the value of your house then? Well, I know what the value of my house was there because I built it. And then 36 months out from that, what was the value of your house? Well, it was higher because the market was going up in value. The point is, is that when you're making an investment, you can't look at what, you know, if you're day trading, that's fine. So if I'm, I'm, I'm going to buy Apple today and I'm, going to, and I'm betting on an earnings announcement and, you know, they announce earnings and it goes up five bucks tomorrow, I sell it and make money. That's great. You're day trading. That's awesome. If you're investing, it's about timeframes and time horizons. And where are you willing to put capital to work over the next 18 to 36 months? Because that's the window you should be looking at for an investment to work out because of its relationship to economic growth, inflation, interest rates, all these other types of things. That includes stocks as well as bonds versus commodities uh, versus anything else. So time frame is very important. Yeah. And that, that's actually not a bad practice just to recommend to people, um, especially if they're a DIY investor, right? Yeah. Which is like any time that you take on a new position, like write down in a log, my horizon for this is X. I'm investing now because I'm expecting some something to happen over X time frame, right? And that way you don't get shaken out if next month it's well, down 7%, right? All right. So I'll give you a good example. Um, so I, it was a couple of months ago. I forgot I was on here. I said, yeah, I just doubled my bond position. We were, I think we were 4.34, 4.35 on the 10 year treasury at the time. And so I doubled my, my TLT position in my, this is my personal account. It has nothing to do with my clients. This is me personally. Since then I've gotten emails like every day, interest rates ticked up a little bit or ticked down. Somebody's emailed me. Well, what do you think now? Has it changed? No. Email me in 18 to 36 months and I'll tell you, right? It, if, I'm, if I've got a long-term horizon, what happens from one day to the next doesn't change my outlook. 
And if I get an opportunity to buy something cheaper where I have such a, a, an outlook uh, based on fundamental valuations, economics, all these type of things, then I'm going to keep buying it, right? If I, if I can buy something at a discount that is, that is A, paying me income while I hold it because I get the interest income off the bonds, but I have an, a, a valuation metric that goes back to 1787 that gives me a very high confidence rate that I'm going to be paid on this investment. Why would I not do it? You know, you don't invest in, you know, in a public, uh, a private company and then try to sell your shares tomorrow, right? You invest in a private company, you go, this is going to take 10 years to build this company, then we'll IPO and it'll be great. Um, you know, but that takes a long time to build that value. So you've got to have the right outlook to match your investment. If you're day trading, day trade. Match your performance to January the 1st and how you are today. And that's great, right? That's that's all you're doing if you're day trading. If you're investing, move your time frames out. What you know, where am I over the where I, where was I over the last five years? Where am I now? Where am I going to be in the next five years? Five year horizons are much better if you're an investor than worrying about what happened from January the first to now. Okay, now now that all makes sense. Now, obviously, you want to be reevaluating your investment to make sure that the thesis hasn't changed along the way. Just want to underscore for folks, this is your chance to clarify it. Yeah. Your thesis has not changed. In fact, it sounds like it's it's still solid enough that you are still putting substantial new money at play in here. And by the way, when you said that you increased your bond holdings by 30% or whatever in your personal portfolio, um, A, we're talking about U.S. treasuries, correct? And B, well, you're talking about case, longer treasuries here? No, no. In this case, um, it's I'm actually just using TLT, right? So I'm buying the ETF. TLT, which is the iShares 20-year ETF. Um, but so, that's 20-year U.S. treasuries that are held by that ETF, right? Right. They have a 15, roughly 15-, 16-year duration. So the, the so in this particular account where I'm doing this, um, it's I'm just using TLT. So uh, again, I, I always want to be careful that I'm doing something. And when I'm doing something personally, um, I have to be a little bit careful about when I'm doing things versus what I'm doing for clients because I don't want to get accused of front-running clients or doing something like that. So if we're buying individual, since we're buying individual treasuries for our clients, I'm buying TLT to keep myself out of that potential legal hassle. Got it. Got it. Okay. And that's right. You you do have some of these other higher standards that you're held to than the average person. And you're also very good about telling us when you're doing something personally versus professionally. Um, and again, that's one of the reasons why we have this weekly recap glances for you to keep people updated as to what you're doing and how you're thinking. Very clear, you're still your main thesis on bonds unchanged and uh, to the point where you are continuing to put not only more your clients' money in it, but but more your own money too. All right. Um, well, we're look, we're near the end of the the time here, and I know you've got a birthday in the family, Lance, to go celebrate today. So we're, we're going to let you head off. Um, Real quick, as we start to wrap up here, um, beyond the personal trade that you just shared with us, what professional trades have you made in the portfolio over the past week, if any? Uh, so, no, we made a few. And we've been talking about this for a while. You know, we we were kind of waiting for this weakness to occur in the market. And we're using that to uh, re kind of rebalance and consolidate and, you know, reduce some risk in the portfolio and add exposures to where we want, thinking where we're going to be kind of for this year and rally. So we're moving our weightings more and more towards kind of a benchmark weighting in the index. Um, so this this week was really, we just, uh, again, 
we, we took a couple positions out of the portfolio. We sold uh, Lennar Homes and Albemarle. They were real small positions in the portfolio. We had we put them in as kind of a tester uh, to see if they were going to work. They weren't performing as well as we had hoped. So we just took those out, raised that cash. Uh, we trimmed off our energy positions a bit. They've had a huge run with oil prices. Uh, they were, they're all very overbought, including oil prices. So we trimmed our, our position in ExxonMobil, for example. Um, we also added to um, our communication sector where we were underweight. So we added to, our, to Comcast and, and our ETF portfolio bought uh, the ETF on communication. So again, it's, it's all very small stuff. It's, it's you know half a percent here, 1% there. It's all just kind of nipping and, and tucking the portfolio to kind of get it ready for what we expect to be this kind of year-end push. And then once we get this year-end push behind us, then we'll start to evaluate next year and probably start considering reducing equity risk, um, you know, fairly substantially. Okay. Um, and again, folks, we have this weekly market recap. So as Lance starts really considering some decisions like that as we get into next year, he'll be sharing them with us here on this channel. Um, all right. Well, and just to wrap up, quick reminder for folks uh, that Wealthion's online fall conference happening on October, Saturday, October 21st. Uh, tickets for that are still on sale at the early bird price. I got to find out the deadline where the price raises. Um, it's coming up. So if you're interested in the conference, uh, go to wealthion.com slash conference. It's got all the information there, but it'll let you buy at that uh, early bird discount, which is 29% off the, the full ticket price. And if you're an alum of a previous conference, um, you check your email, you'll have a uh, code there from me giving you an additional 15% off of that 29% uh, discount. So um, uh, faculty remains uh, the, the, the best we've ever had. Uh, Jeff Clark just signed on to do uh, a bonus video of the top uh, precious metals mining companies that he thinks uh, have the best profile going forward. Uh, so that's a bit of new news. And just a reminder, because uh, I've been getting this question a lot, and I, I know I need to say this more. If you can't watch live on Saturday, October 1st, uh, don't worry. Everybody who registers for the event will get replay videos of the entire event, both the presentations themselves, as well as all the interactive live Q&A sessions. Um, and then just wrapping up, as we do every week, but I think Lance did a great job of underscoring the need for it this week. If you're a regular person trying to navigate these markets and what's coming from here, um, it's tough for their professionals, but for regular people who have regular lives, regular jobs, regular families to take care of, it can be highly overwhelming, which is why we highly recommend that you navigate this environment under the guidance of a good professional financial advisor, but certainly one that takes into account all of the macro issues that Lance and I talked about today and that the guests who appear on this channel regularly and I talk about. If you've got a good one who's doing that for you, great, stick with them. But if you don't, consider scheduling a free consultation with one of the financial advisory firms that Wealthion endorses. To do that, just fill out the short form at Wealthion.com. Only takes a couple of seconds. These consultations are free. Uh, there's no commitment to work with these guys. It's just a free public service that um, folks like Lance and his team offer to help as many people as possible, position as prudently as, as possible in advance of the potentialities that Lance and I talked about in this video. Um, if, uh, if, if you get your uh, favorite hour and a half of the week by watching this weekly market recap with, I, uh, with Lance and I every week, Please ensure it continues by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Lance, I give you the last word, buddy. Um, 
I, I wish I had something positive to say going to next week, but I just really have no idea, um, you know, at this moment. But again, uh, get ready to wrap up September. Earning season right around the corner. So we'll have a lot to talk about. All right. And folks, look, if you, uh, you still haven't gotten your full fill of macro, if you haven't watched it yet, go watch that video of Darius Dale. I'll put it up here at the end of this video. Uh, great conversation that builds on a lot of the things that Lance and I talked about here. Uh, but with that, Lance, thanks. Another great week with you, buddy. Look forward to thanks. next week. Everyone else, yeah. thanks so much for watching.